Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, May 8th. In today's news, President Trump's valet tests positive for the coronavirus, sparking fear in the West Wing. As his administration pushes remdesivir, an unequal rollout angers doctors. And amid the stench of death, some heroes are taking risks to deliver us from desolation. But first, the big idea. Julio Ayala first felt the ache in his bones during back-to-back shifts behind the wheel of a delivery truck and a janitor's mop. By the time he returned to his East Boston apartment one evening last month, a fever had seized his large frame. The Salvadoran immigrant called in sick the next day when his longtime partner, Idalia, made him food. The barrel-chested 45-year-old had no appetite. Then Julio lost his sense of smell and taste. As a cough began to rattle his broad chest, Idalia begged him to get tested for the coronavirus. In an interview this week, she remembered pleading with him, go to the hospital, please don't stay here. Each time, however, he refused. Across the country, thousands of people infected with this lethal virus are staying home even as their conditions deteriorate. Some are unsure if they have COVID-19 because of a lack of testing and the evolving list of symptoms linked to the disease. Others underestimate the toll the illness will take on them. Yet many stay home not out of confusion or overconfidence, but fear. Fear. Fear that hospitalization will bring financial ruin. Fear that ICE agents will find them and send them to the countries from which they came. Fear that they will die alone in an unfamiliar place rather than in their own bed surrounded by loved ones. Those anxieties, those fears, run deepest in poor, minority, and undocumented communities, which have also been ravaged the hardest by this contagion. For Julio, who had temporary protected status and permission to work in the United States, ICE posed a threat not to him, but to his undocumented partner and her 15-year-old son. Mostly, Julio feared that a trip to the hospital would mean financial struggles for a family already trying to make ends meet and pay the rent. Idalia, who spoke to us on the condition that we use her middle name because she's afraid of being deported, said Julio was always worried about the bills. When the alarm on his cell phone rang every morning at 5 a.m., the big man would try to roll out of bed without waking her up, and he'd head to the kitchen for coffee before heading to his back-to-back full-time jobs. Julio sent most of his income back to his mom in El Salvador. The night after he called in sick, Julio's cough became a painful wheeze. This time, when Hidalia implored him to go to the hospital, he agreed. But he told her, mañana, tomorrow. Julio wouldn't make it till tomorrow. He woke up at 1.30 a.m. complaining that he felt like he was suffocating. Hidalia put Vic's vapor rub on his chest to help him breathe. But when she put her arms around him, he shrugged her off. So she turned away and fell back asleep. She woke up three hours later to the sound of his 5 a.m. alarm, ringing and ringing and ringing. He was dead. 
since the start of the pandemic, the coronavirus has quietly killed thousands of Americans in their homes this very way. A total of 75,254 coronavirus deaths have been confirmed in the United States as of this morning with another 1.25 million infections. But both numbers are likely dramatic undercounts. According to official data from the CDC, 7% of COVID-19 deaths have occurred at home compared with 73% in hospitals and 19% in nursing facilities or hospices. But an investigation by the Post finds that many deaths went uncounted in March and April. There were nearly twice as many additional deaths in the U.S. as were publicly attributed to coronavirus at the time. Data from local governments suggests that many of those additional deaths were people dying at home of COVID-19. Though specific data remains scarce on those who die at home, their ranks include the old and the young, the frail and the fit, the ill-prepared and healthcare professionals. On Long Island, a 99-year-old died at home after being unable to get tested. In Palm Beach, Florida, a 33-year-old nurse's test came back inconclusive. Two weeks later, her husband found her lifeless on the couch. And in Columbia, South Carolina, Tim Lizuski had been awaiting his test results for a week when his fever, which had hovered around 102 degrees, suddenly dropped. But when his fiancée came downstairs the next morning, she found the 60-year-old slumped over his computer, dead. Both of them, she would later learn, had COVID-19. Maris Burton, who has since recovered from the disease, said she's glad the man she was due to marry later this month didn't go to the emergency room. She said he still would have died, but he would have died at the hospital all alone. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we end another hellish week in America. Number one, the White House rapidly increased coronavirus testing for those around President Trump and took other emergency measures yesterday after a staffer whose job potentially puts him in close daily contact with the president tested positive. The White House says both Trump and Vice President Pence have since tested negative. The infected staffer is one of Trump's personal valets. The military staff members who sometimes serve meals and look after the personal needs of the president. That would mean that the president, his Secret Service detail, and senior members of the White House staff could have had close or prolonged contact with this aide before his illness was diagnosed. The president says testing of White House staff will now be done daily rather than once per work week. Trump was frustrated when told of the positive test. And one of the problems for the president is that a test now might not register positive even if he has contracted the virus. Reasons include the limitations of the rapid test that's being used. And if the president or vice president were infected, they might not yet have a large quantity of virus in their nose or the back of their throat where swab is used to collect a sample. Wider use of masks among staffers in the West Wing is expected, but will remain optional. Relatively few staffers who interact frequently with the president wear masks. In fact, one who did, the Deputy National Security Advisor Matt Pottinger, has drawn snickers from colleagues for doing so. Trump himself has never worn a face mask in public during the pandemic, and he said that doing so while performing his official duties would be unseemly. Meanwhile, as this is happening in the White House, Trump is more tightly controlling information than ever about the continuing danger to the American people from this pandemic in order to strengthen his case for a return to economic normalcy. 
The administration has sidelined or replaced officials not seen as sufficiently loyal, rebuffed congressional requests for testimony, dismissed jarring statistics and models, praised states for reopening without meeting White House guidelines, and briefly this week pushed to disband the task force created to combat the virus. He eventually backed down. One senior administration official says the public health experts are being sidelined because they're, quote, scaring people. This person said that the dire warnings are at odds with the president's call to open up our country. What's also scary about this is that several Republican governors are following Trump's lead as part of a concerted effort to control the narrative by concealing bad facts from the citizenry. In Arizona, where Governor Doug Ducey is pushing businesses to reopen, the state health department abruptly halted the work of a team of experts who predicted the outbreak's peak was still about two weeks away. Eventually, the governor reversed this decision amid an outcry after someone leaked what was going on inside. Governors in Georgia, Texas, Iowa, and elsewhere have been praised by Trump as they ignored recommendations from federal health officials and doctors in their states to begin phased reopenings. States like Florida, under the leadership of Governor Ron DeSantis, have dramatically limited or begun redacting public information about their coronavirus deaths. Number two, demand for remdesivir has exploded since the Trump Food and Drug Administration made an emergency use authorization for the experimental drug. The Trump administration is maintaining control of the distribution of the drug, which is in limited supply. Doctors in several hospitals, including some that have seen surges in COVID-19 cases, say they can't get access to remdesivir for their patients and that they don't understand the process for obtaining the drug and that the government is not answering their basic questions. In Boston, Massachusetts General Hospital said it is in line to receive the drug, but two other large teaching hospitals in the city have been denied supplies without any explanation. Doctors also complain that they've yet to see the results of the NIH study that cleared the way for the FDA's emergency use authorization, which means they still don't know which patients stand to benefit the most from prescribing remdesivir. Two other new studies are helping doctors better understand additional treatments. Giving blood thinners turns out to help boost the prospects for survival of coronavirus patients. Remember, we've been talking about the clottages and the microclottages that are causing strokes and brain hemorrhages. Physicians at New York City's largest hospital system have analyzed the charts of 2,700 patients, and they have a paper today in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. They say more rigorous, randomized studies are needed to draw broader conclusions, but the initial results are quite promising. Another fresh study, this one in the New England Journal of Medicine, finds that there is no evidence, no evidence that hydroxychloroquine lowers either the risk of dying from the coronavirus or needing to be put on a ventilator. The anti-malarial drug was widely touted by Trump for weeks. He peddled unproven claims from the briefing room and on Twitter that were and are at odds with the science. Number three, it's now been eight long and lonely weeks since the coronavirus pandemic shut down most of America. Eight weeks of crowded emergency rooms and empty schools of avoiding one another at the grocery store and of watching people who have lost their jobs waiting in mile-long lines for donated food so that their kids don't starve. Normal life already seems a distant memory and a return to it still feels impossible to comprehend. Yet amid all the darkness, there are people working to light a path forward. 
They are immigrants and the children of immigrants, public servants, people on their second careers. They are planners and problem solvers. What they lack in swagger, they make up for in empathy, skill, and statistical rigor. Their greatest power is their ability to learn from the mistakes of the past. They are the right people in the right place at the right moment. People like physician researcher Andre Khalil, a veteran of past epidemics who's trying to find a cure for this one. They don't offer easy answers or miracle cures that aren't backed up by science. They know there's no resurrecting the lives they once had. Still, they're giving what they can to a moment that demands it. When it is most difficult to imagine the world getting better, they've summoned the creativity and the courage to invent the world anew. Scientists actually have a word for populations threatened by a virus that they've never seen before. Naive. Naive describes patients whose immune systems lack the tools to fight off the pathogen, whose bodies are caught unaware. How quickly those patients can muster their biological defenses determines whether they survive. Society, too, has been caught off guard. In a matter of months, a virus one one-thousandth the width of a human eyelash has emptied the national medical stockpile, shattered the health system, and brought the global economy to a standstill. Now, matters of life and death depend on the speed with which people rise to the occasion. Across America, we're seeing grace and grit grow out of the struggle. Anar Yukayev is a New York OBGYN who became severely ill with COVID-19. Thankfully, he's recovered. And now he has enrolled in a risky clinical trial trying to develop an untested treatment. Anar credits his mother, who worked as a midwife in her native Azerbaijan, with teaching him to serve others. They came to America when he was seven years old. And now... He wants to give back to this country that welcomed him with open arms. Anar told us, quote, if there is any chance it could potentially help someone, it is the least I can do. And that's the Daily 202 for Friday, May 8th. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Holman. Stay safe this weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday.